Closing a deal is one thing. Closing a deal doesn't make your investors anything. You have to perform on selling where you projected you know you were going to sell it and performing on the cash flows and the cash on cash returns you promised your investors. That's really the the most important thing we do as real estate owners and, and syndicators. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with my friend, Mike Flaherty today. Oh, baby, this episode is so good. It's so powerful. And it's timely and timeless in terms of taking your multifamily investing to the next level. If you want to learn about how to use an analytical mind to evaluate investments, yet not be in analysis paralysis and grow and scale tremendously. Today's episode is for you. Oh, I'm just so excited about this conversation because there are nuggets in here that can make you millions of dollars. It can help save you in situations where you could lose millions of dollars. And I I don't want you to be in that position because this business is very powerful. It's very exciting. But if you don't know the downfalls, and if you have any blind spots, then you can be putting yourself in a very risky position. So today's episode is extremely valuable. LV Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and entrepreneur. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. I want to thank you so much for being here. I want to thank you so much for listening. And I want to invite you to pay the fee. The fee is to pay it forward. All you have to do is share this episode with a friend or someone in your network. And we are just deeply thankful from the bottom of my heart and our team's hearts that you have been doing that. And we are seeing exciting, substantial growth in our community. And really, that is important to us. It's important for us to be able to continue is to continue to see growth. And it comes down to personal referrals. I mean, this is just like any other business. We just ask for you to share this episode. All you have to do is grab the link, send it in a text message, an email, or just mention it to somebody next time you're out grabbing a cup of coffee or lunch. Hey, you know, I listen to this podcast and, and here's what it's all about. You should look it up. It's a it's a really easy way to pay it forward. If you've done that in the past, we thank you so much. We just ask that you pay it forward once again to someone else. And if it's your first time listening to the podcast, I want to thank you so much for being here and for listening and engaging in this community. We are here to pour into your cup. We just excited about that. We're excited to continue to do that. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Mike Flaherty, who is the founder and managing partner of L5 Real Estate Investments. Throughout his career, Mike has been involved in the ownership, development, and entitlements of over 200 plus nationwide commercial and residential properties valued at over $1 billion in total, including multifamily, resort, hospitality, office, retail, and large master plan residential communities. His passion for multifamily investment performance is based on his niche for detailed due diligence, and you'll find that out today, market analysis, and acquisition of value-add opportunities. Mike actively participates in all acquisitions and management of L5 assets. Prior to founding L5, Mike was a partner with Cardinal Real Investments, where the focus was on the astute repositioning and development of residential and commercial 
in Los Angeles and New York City. This included the repositioning of a $29 million office building and an $18 million mixed use development. There's really so much more that I could say about Mike, but ultimately he is a phenomenal guy. He is somebody that's continuing to grow and push the bar even higher. And you'll also find out that he's a great family man. And, you know, he's really setting an example in designing a very exciting life. He's a guy that, you know, really just continues to set an example that anything is possible. So without further ado, please enjoy this amazing conversation with the great Mike Flaherty, the legendary Mike Flaherty. Welcome back to Elevate, my friend. How you doing? Thank you, my friend. How you doing, Tyler? Good to see you. Doing wonderful. And I uh, really appreciate you making more time to be with us. It was interesting as I was kind of getting prepared for our discussion today. I was reflecting back that it was two and a half years ago in a primitive time called COVID-19, <laughs> like in the heart of this, when we initially did our first interview for Elevate. And that was kind of when you and I were really getting to know each other. But uh, it's been fun to really, really understand more about your perspective and just kind of just the way that you look at the world and the way that you interact with your business and your family. It's just been it's really been a joy. So I'm excited to have part two. Finally, you know, a lot of times I say, well, I look forward to part two. Well, today is that day. So thanks again for joining me. Uh, what's been going on with you, man, over the past couple of years? I mean, obviously, you've been blowing and going in business, but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's been a fun couple of years, right? You go from April 1st of 2020 from you and I were talking about that, not, not sure if anyone was going to pay their rent. You know, you, you you were blessed to be in a very risk adverse real estate asset class that performs well in good times and in bad. And when you go through a global pandemic, you really never know. And, you know, I think we all braced for the worst. You know, I remember myself and my partner and my team were talking to the banks, thinking everything's going back to the bank and how we're going to pay our mortgages and then at least with our portfolio, you know, we have a little over 7,100 units, mostly B-class, solid, consistent upper workforce housing. You look back and it's like, okay, how did how did the, the pandemic affect us? Well, our occupancy went up from, you know, 95 to 97%. And our collections certainly were hurt, but in the scheme of a lot of other businesses, right? When you think of office and retail. We did great. You know, our, our collections went from like 99% to maybe 97%. And, and we ended up continuing to, to buy through that period, you know, while a lot of others were sitting on the sidelines. And, you know, I credit my team for kind of pushing us through that, right? Rates were low and, and we still had, right, you know, we still had some semblance of rent growth. And then you, know, you go into the latest cycle of, of tremendous rent growth as a function of inflation coming out of COVID. Uh, you know, we've averaged what 10 to 12% on renewal leases and anywhere from 15 to upwards of 30% on new lease growth over the last year or so. So it's been a, it's been an interesting, exciting time. I always enjoy having these conversations with you in particular, because it, it almost feels like I'm speaking to, you know, like a practical macro economist in our space, because you're, you're a national player uh, involved in so many different markets. Obviously, you're evaluating deals constantly, you're continuing to grow, you're obviously operating many different assets, you mentioned 7100 plus units across the country, and obviously continuing to grow and, and the portfolio is always 
always it's, it's migrating, it's evolving. It's, you know, some deals are perhaps you may be exiting and, and you're obviously continuing to grow. One thing that you kind of glossed over there is, you know, you, you continued to buy throughout that period of time. And obviously from an operation standpoint in the beginning, it was like, man, who knows what's going to happen with these deals? It's like, are we going to give everything back to the bank? And obviously looking back, hindsight is 2020 and it's been very successful for you. But beyond that, on a growth trajectory, I mean, that that's something I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit, because I know you and I have had some have had extensive conversations offline just about how you're finding deals, how you are, you know, just really growing at scale. And you have been able to do that over the past couple of years as well. Could you talk a little bit about what that has looked like from a growth perspective? You know, we'll probably go there, but obviously it's a lot more challenging right now in an environment of raising interest rates and raising cap rates. So certainly, you know, the, the acquisition growth of our business has has slowed to say the least at the moment. But, you know, growth from getting, you know, from my first property was an 80 unit property in Odessa, Texas to, you know, 71, 7,200 units. You know, I always say it's, uh, there's no magic sauce to it, right? Doing one good deal a time by your investors, you know, rinse and repeat, right? Repeating that formula over and over, over a long period of time. I've been doing multifamily for 13 plus years. You know, right? We've survived the Great Recession. We've survived the Great Pandemic. You know, and we're going to do just fine going through inflation and you know what sure seems to be a, a looming light to mild recession here. But that's really the you know the growth, right? You go from one deal a year to two deals a year to three deals a year to you know last year I think we did six deals. And it's, you know, proving up trust and track record with your partners and your investors, most importantly, and then just building a team, you know, from, uh, you know, investor advisors that have been with us eight years to a fantastic asset manage- manager that's been in the business 30 years, that's made a great impact on our business over the last five to six years. So just, you know, having a great partner and great young guys finding deals that, do it the right way and and you know do what they they said they're going to do and and doing the right thing so it's it's a function of doing the right thing over a long period of time Absolutely. And it is, it's really encouraging and exciting to have these conversations with you because it kind of does go back to the fundamentals. It's doing the right thing. It's, you know, sticking to your principles and to your point, it's executing on your promises and delivering on those promises and allowing that to really compound. And the thing that it's, it's always interesting to me is that, you know, in these times of, of change and turmoil, whenever I have a conversation with you, you know, you're very analytical about what's happening in the market and, and, in many regards, very patient to let things play out before you make your move. But when you make your move, you're like all in. That was one of the things that's really stuck out to me over the past couple of years. I mean, you made how many acquisitions? I mean, what type of dollar amount are we talking about over the past 24, you know, 30 months or so? It's been probably 350 million plus or minus. That's remarkable. And uh, that's not somebody who's sitting and waiting and hoping and wishing, but there are times where you do evaluate and you kind of pause and, you know, you have this brief moment of pencils down, but then you push all in. But, you know, I I do want to go back to kind of the raising capital and stuff and the team stuff and all that, but you did touch on, Hey, well, what are we seeing now? And I do think that it's important for us to touch on because we're, we're definitely at another sort of inflection point. It feels like in the economy, of course, we've had, you know, the federal reserve has, has hiked interest rates tremendously in 
2022. That's been kind of the central theme of this year, fighting inflation. You know, who knows what, what is to come in 2023? I think we've all got sort of our own our own perspective of the crystal ball. But I'd love to hear from Mr. Mike Flaherty. I mean, what is your perspective of the crystal ball from an economic standpoint, as well as obviously, specifically when it comes to multifamily investing? Well, there's so many moving parts right now, right? And through over the last six months, it's like it's evolving every month to month. You know, I've been wanting to update my investors on my on my thoughts, you know, every week. And every week it changes, you know, it, right or wrong. At least at this point, the main variable is what's the Fed going to do, right? And you and I were just talking, news just came out. Chairman Powell just said, hey, they're going to start to ease rates. But what does that what does that mean, right? Is that a 50 basis point increase or a 25 basis point increase? Are they done after 2022? How deep into 2023 will rates continue to hike? We'll see. I definitely think the Fed did it too late in this cycle. I think they did it too aggressively towards the tail end, which certainly has hurt you know our industry with this sudden rise in rates specifically over the last three to four months and putting us in a position where now we need seller expectations to get in line and cap rates to get in line very quickly. But I think things will start to get back to hopefully some semblance of a norm uh, later next year. I think it'll depend on the the extent of, a, as I said, a lighter, mild recession that we hit. But th there's just so much demand for multifamily and housing. We're still deep in a housing shortage that's expected to last another 10 to, I heard an economist say the other day, another 10 to 11 years. So there's tremendous demand for rentals in, in our space. And there's also a lot of capital, right? As you and I have been talking offline, there's all the coffers of capital that wanted to buy multifamily, both domestic dollars, international dollars. It's, you see the US as a safe haven. Those dollars that wanted to come in pre-pandemic, are still there. Those dollars that wanted to come in pre-inflation are still there. Everyone's on the sidelines, kind of not wanting to catch a falling knife with rates and cap rates and wanting to jump into the stability that multifamily investing brings once we really know when, when will interest rates start to stabilize here. So I think that's the positive news on the on the horizon here. Yeah, and I think it's very difficult to project. I mean, truly what will actually play out just because of the fact that, you know, the central sort of theme of what we've been discussing is really the function of interest rates and, and where those are actually going. And you've said this a couple of times in our conversation already. I'd love to just hear more thoughts behind this. You're kind of thinking perhaps a light or mild recession. Is that fair to say? And if so, I mean, could you expand upon that? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm, as you mentioned earlier, I, I'm pretty detail oriented and analytical and I ask a lot of questions and I, and I listen to people who I perceive as a lot smarter than myself. And, you know, myself and my team, we listen to a lot of economists, read a lot of material. And that's really what we're seeing and hearing. And it, it, a lot of it ties to what the Fed ends up doing. You know, if, if indeed they end up easing and stopping rate hikes, by the end of first quarter, maybe second quarter 2023, I think that'll be the case. If that continues to be deeper into 2023 with consistently strong rate hikes, that, that could change that thought, Tyler. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, it, it all comes down to how committed or, or really what that inflation actually looks like and how committed the Federal Reserve is to really tampering that and really bringing that back sort of in the in the box where they, they feel like that's reasonable. So I, I'd love to, you know, just kind of go back to that analytical mind and that engineering mind that you have. I mean, that, that's really kind of your background and your perspective and the way that you sort of bring your thought process to this business. And I've always admired that. I mean, you are very sort of thoughtful thoughtful in the way that you look at things, the way that you listen. By the way, I love your humility to say, hey, I listen to all these people who are smarter than me. I think, you know, we've all got to give you a little bit more credit than you're willing to give yourself, perhaps. I mean, you're a pretty smart guy. But talk to me about that analytical and engineering mind or engineer mindset that you have. I mean, how does that come into play? I mean, obviously, it starts, I would imagine, from just reading the market landscape, making some assumptions on where things are actually going. But then it drills into particular deals, particular assets, particular Submarkets. Talk to me a little bit about how you use that and, and how that's been an advantage for you. Yeah, I mean, I have a I have an undergrad degree from Villanova in civil engineering. You know, my first job as a young 21 22 year old was with an engineering firm, and and I did due diligence for a lot of large out of Philadelphia for a lot of large national retail de- developers from the likes of you know Exxon Mobil, McDonald's. Walmart, Walgreens, et cetera. And that was my thing, doing due diligence to help these large companies, developers not make mistakes and make the right decisions for their shareholders, their investors, when it comes to buying land and, and developing land and what can they do and what can't they do and what's the the entitlement process and the permitting process. So that's my background. And I think when you can ask those questions and you understand the answers to those questions going into anything in life, right? But I think the key to making good, smart, prudent investments really comes down to due diligence and understanding the the rights and the wrongs and the the pitfalls of where you could have some problems. So that's kind of the basis of my mindset. You know, finding a deal is one thing. But closing on it and making sure that you've checked all the boxes, right? From what kind of electrical panels do you have and the level of deferred maintenance that the property has that you're inheriting as a buyer to the, the, you know, the political makeup of the local city council, planning commission, et cetera, to understanding, you know, potential permitting pitfalls, you know, from adding amenities to adding washer dryers in this specific, you know, property to really understanding the submarket, right? Where's the path of progress, northeast, south, west? What employers are there? Where are tenants working? Are those employers growing or not growing? Who's hiring? Who's firing? A lot of those are just some of the questions we look heavily into. Strength of school districts, crime history, et cetera. And that's the beauty of what we buy with B-class multifamily apartments built in the 70s and 80s. There's a track record, right? You can look at historic you know, financials looking back from one year to 10 years. I mean, sometimes we're buying from groups that have owned the property 10 to 30 years. And, and that takes a lot of the risk off the table, especially when you, when you have experience and you're asking the right questions to help protect your investors. 
And I'm sure that you've had experiences along the way that have maybe scarred you and have caused you to be even more rigorous in some parts of your due diligence. Are, are there any any sort of examples that come up to say, well, I'll never make that mistake again from a due diligence perspective or just an evaluation of an opportunity perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, gosh, we had a property in San Diego and we trusted a partner and inherited a budget you know, from a management company that had not signed off on our our partner's budget. You know, that's a problem and a red flag. We'll never do that again. You know, the property was also adjacent to a pretty significant 40, 50 foot slope down to the adjacent property. And over time, that slope started to fail. And, you know, we needed to budget at four to five hundred thousand dollars to fix it. You know, I, I don't I don't. Um, you know, we, we certainly won't do that again or buy a property like that again. Um, you know, property in Kansas City. Yeah, I think we misjudge the local municipality. Normally what, what we do with gentrifying apartments, right, you're adding value to the community. We bought a property that had been affordable housing in a very, very affluent area. And we were taking rents to market. We were putting I think, six million into renovating the property, you know, uh, fixtures, finishes, paint, adding amenities, adding a brand new clubhouse with gym and pool area. And most communities welcome you. This community was very challenging to work with. You know, they didn't like our paint colors. Um, It just really became a mess and a delay. And as a result, it took us almost 14 months to get the pool open and get the leasing center open. So we had a 200 unit apartment community without amenities, without a business center, without a pool, without a fitness center, without a social Starbucks environment, which is what we like to to add to our properties. So, I mean, those are a couple of pitfalls you run into. Um, You know, sometimes you'll buy a property from a seller that added washer dryers, but didn't permit them correctly. And you, you may inherit you know, some of those challenges going forward. Um, One thing we look heavily at right now is the electrical panels. Um, Stablock, Zinsco, the insurance industry is getting very, very challenging and requiring a lot of these electrical panels to be replaced from a fire hazard standpoint. If you're not aware of that, you could close on it and find out six months later, you need to put a, you know, a million dollars into electrical panel replacement. So those are some of the things that we've learned from and, you know, and, and look out for going forward. And it, it's an evolving, changing game. And, you know, if you're not on top of it, it can be a very expensive problem. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I know, like, just from our own experience, I mean, our our due diligence checklist just continues to grow just from, you know, our own experience and, you know, feedback from other individuals like yourself and other operators like yourself who have shared some of these horror stories. And I think that's one of the reasons why these type of conversations in, in this podcast, if I do say so myself, is extremely valuable is because you can learn from others without you know, having to make what can be extremely costly mistakes to your point. I mean, are there any other tips that you might suggest for the listeners, you know, not only to establish their own system to mitigate these type of risks uh, in opportunities, or is there anything else that you might suggest maybe mentors or maybe anything else like that? Well, as you said, there's just a lot of variables, right, that you can miss your due diligence checklist is always 
changing, evolving. I, you know, I think at some point I had one with over 600 different, you know, questions to be answered. It's, it's overwhelming, right? And if you don't know what you're doing, it's, it's easy to miss something that, that could come really come back to haunt you. You, your own dollars and your investors' dollars. So I think partnering with the right operating partner that might have that background. I always used to call our team the due diligence freaks. And we take a lot of pride in that. But, you know, we also are partnering with management, national management companies that manage over 100,000 units nationwide. You know, they have their own due diligence teams and their own checklists. And, and you know, when we're buying in, uh, I know you're a Kentucky guy, you know, Lexington, Kentucky, we want to work with a company that manages not one property in Lexington, Kentucky, but maybe 10, maybe a thousand units in any given market. So they know the players, they know the vendors, they know the pitfalls, they know the pros and cons of any given municipality where you're buying in. Developing those relationships can really, really help save you a lot of time, money and headaches over the over the long haul. I totally agree. And you know, the thing I'm actually, I'm sitting here and I'm kind of laughing at myself because you have this analytical mind and this perspective that in some cases, you know, you risk having analysis paralysis because it's almost like, how how do you do anything? It's like, if you think about it, 600 questions, it's like, how do you actually buy anything? But at the same time, you're talking about $350 million in acquisitions over the past two years. So obviously you're getting beyond that. You know, I think that's an interesting dynamic. I mean, is there any, any thoughts that you'd like to add to that? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I try not to, number one, you can never fall in love with your real estate deal, right? And, and putting something under contract doesn't mean you've closed on it, right? You, know, you typically have anywhere from seven to 30 days to do your due diligence and do your homework and make sure you're buying the right property and you understand the ins and outs of it. And you have a property management budget that matches your your financial model and your underwriting. So you really got to make the best of that. Try to really stick to my guns with that and say, hey, let's not get excited until we know we've done you know, our homework and know that our budget is accurate and our construction dollars are on par with what we think you know any given opportunity property really, really needs. Certainly part of it is just staying very black and white You've done your homework. And that's when you, know, you mentioned I get excited. I do get excited, right? You know, because you, you can't fall in love, but you're very interested in the property because you like the story, right? Uh, under market rents, mismanaged, great growth markets. You know, those are the types of deals we, we love to buy. You know, well-located, good access to employment centers, good retail, mass transit. You know, if we find a property where I can hit, you know, eight of my top 10 highlights for any given deal, I'm pretty excited. But we need to stay and be diligent with the process before we move forward buying a 10 to $60 million apartment deal that has, you know, 40 to 100 investors in it. Is it fair to say that over the years, you've gotten to a point where if you start to feel excited, you know that there's something in alignment with a, a quality opportunity because of how many times you've asked these questions and you've seen things that don't work or you see things that do work or you see that hidden value or that hidden risk. Is it fair to say that at this point, when you feel that level of excitement, you know, there's there's definitely something worth pursuing? I get excited after we put our, our investor investor summary package together with all the pretty pictures and we've succinctly summarized you know, our top 10 investment highlights and we're halfway through our due diligence. 
then we know where the value plays are, where we can capitalize on, on making money and driving other income and driving rents. That's really when I get excited, Tyler. <laughs> when all the hard work of putting together that investment summary, it's like, oh my gosh, that, that I'm, I'm with you. That is exciting. It's like now, we, yeah. now the real fun begins because we now get to offer this opportunity to our investors and we get to really share this, this upside. Yes. And that's exciting for me because you're right. A lot of the heavy lifting has been done. You're under contract. You've got your package done. You're extremely comfortable with the due diligence. Usually at that point in time, we've already walked all 300 units. We have construction estimates coming in. We know the condition of the, you know, structural issues and roof issues and HVAC issues. Our budget's pretty dialed in. The story that we initially liked when we first were offering on the property is still intact. And then, you know, you're sitting down with your investors and you're explaining a, a great investment opportunity that you wholeheartedly believe in. That's the fun of it for me, Tyler. I totally agree. And it, but it takes a lot of heavy lifting to get there. No doubt. Right. I was going to say it's overwhelming to get to that point, but I, I share that with you as well. It's so gratifying because all the hard work is then worth it because then you fully understand it. You understand where the pitfalls are. You understand how to mitigate those pitfalls. And obviously there are some that may be hidden and you need to be ready to, to adapt and, and uh, pivot as you go go, but you also truly understand the story of this deal and the upside of this deal. And so that you can really share that. And, and to your point, I mean, it's just, it's a huge uphill battle to get there, but I think all of that gratitude and sort of excitement comes through going through a hard thing. But, you know, one of the things that I think is something that a lot of people miss and, and you know, we talk so much about finding the deals and, you know, evaluating the markets and making decisions, but ultimately it comes down to the fundamentals. It comes down to execution. And so you've talked about one of the big difference makers for you over the past few years has been really asset management and just building your team around asset management. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out CF Capital. CF Capital is the premier boutique real estate investment firm in the Midwest and Southeast region of the United States. We are a national real estate investment firm with a purpose. We provide property investment and asset management solutions to help passive investors maximize returns on high value multifamily communities. But our investments go far beyond acquisitions. We invest in people. We are in the business of elevating communities and raising the bar for everyone within our ecosystem. CF Capital is a real estate investment firm focused on the acquisition and operation of multifamily assets. We confidently deliver tax advantage, stable cash flow, and capital appreciation with a margin of safety. By investing alongside our team, investors can preserve and grow their wealth without having to deal with tenants, termites, or toilets. Investors come and stay for the outsized returns we create in our deals while appreciating the ancillary opportunity to make a bigger impact that only CF Capital can provide. If you're an investor and want to invest with us, here's how. Learn more about CF Capital at cfcapllc.com or by simply clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. We will see you on the inside of this powerful community. So let's elevate communities together. Talk to me a little bit about some of the, the biggest lessons or the biggest sort of takeaways that you've come through over the past few years regarding asset management so that you are seeing through these business plans. Because ultimately, it's great to put it on paper. It's great to present the package, but it's so much better to exceed expectations. So talk to me a little bit about asset management. I think it's as we're talking through this, it's easy. You know, once you hear it, it's very easy because we talk about how hard it is to find a deal. 
and negotiate a deal and how exciting it is to put a deal under contract. Hey, we're going to buy this deal. And then we talk about all the hard work to put together the package and the importance and the extent and the depth of the due diligence process, right? All that goes into it. And then you need to raise capital, right? You need to bring your your network of investors that have worked with you for five to 20 years that trust your judgment wholeheartedly, you know, into the deal. And then, you know, then you got to source the debt, right? You need to get your loan lined up. You need to make sure interest rates stay in line with what you initially projected when you were buying the property. And then you got to close it. And I I probably just missed like 20 more steps there. And and for a lot of people, it's like, hey, that's time to celebrate, right? And, And I think every major milestone is an opportunity to to celebrate and, and, and take some pride in from a team standpoint. But the reality of it is you don't make any money at that point in time. You know, people say you make money on the buy, but you make money by performing on the buy, right? Closing a deal is one thing. Closing a deal doesn't make your investors anything. You have to perform on selling where you projected you, know, you were going to sell it and performing on the cash flows and the cash on cash returns you promised your investors. That's really the the most important thing we do as real estate owners and in syndicators and being well, I think the most important thing is we do is is be being great stewards of others of other others money and dollars and accounts and family legacies, right? You got to perform on what you said you were going to do. And that's what asset management is. It's so easy to take your foot off the gas and go, "Okay, we closed this deal. Let's let's go find the next great deal. And, and I just don't have that mindset. You know, you have to close the closing a deal is, is step number one, step number two out of a 10 step process. And the rest of the steps are the most important, right? You need to perform on your operating budget. You need to perform on your construction budget. You need to perform to your investors on what you projected from a return standpoint, and then exit at a you know a really attractive price and return for your investors. And you cannot do that without asset management. I totally agree. And I think a lot of people who are, whether you're a passive investor or newer as an investor in the business, as an active investor, I think a lot of people just don't realize how much goes into proper asset management on a day-to-day perspective. I mean, there's so many decisions, there's so many challenges, there's so many problems to solve. There's so many nuances that you have to execute on a daily basis. And there's such a teamwork that is required to be able to do that effectively and efficiently, and especially over time, because you know, you can perform well on one deal or two deals, but to be able to do that at scale, I mean, it's, it's just a very remarkable process to really establish. And so I'd love to, you know, dive into that. I mean, when you think about sort of the team and tools and technology and other resources that you utilize to be able to do that at scale effectively, to be able to remain on target for investors and to be able to solve problems and to be able to just continue to hold your team accountable for the business plan and really to strive to exceed expectations. I mean, is there anything that's been really, really useful for you that you'd like to point to? I mean, the obvious and people say this all the time, but, you know, it, it starts with being honest and ethical. And, you know, I have, I have a partner. I, we've worked together for 13 plus years. And if, if I'm tied up and he can't write, reach me or vice versa, I, I know we're both going to do the right thing and make the right decision per our team and per the investors. And, you know, yesterday I was tied up and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get caught up on email last night. And there's like 50 emails going back and forth on insurance premiums and renewals. And, you know, my partner and my asset manager are just all over it. So, you know, I think it, sometimes it's just 
it just takes time doing the right thing. Other tools we have, we subscribe to RealPage, you know, when it comes to understanding sales comps, rent comps, we rely heavily on their, their rent growth projections over a five-year period when it comes to rent growth and occupancy percentages. We subscribe to Juniper Square is our investor management software, uh, which our investors love. All the distributions are made through there. That's an institutional platform. Investors can log on and check their account, check their distributions and check their net asset value of their investment You know, 24-7. We just signed on with some new software to help our asset manager create the the tracking reports on any given property uh, in a format that she needs to help her make sure that we are performing per budget and the management companies are performing per budget, making sure we understand where they're you know, where are the variances, both positive and negative at any point in time. So you know, those are some of the tools that we've grown into relying very heavily on as we've grown the portfolio, Tyler. Yeah, that's that's really good, Mike. And one thing I think of, you know, there's we're we're never really completely on target when it comes to a pro forma. A pro forma is just that it's a projection and we we hope to exceed those projections and we try to be conservative and I know you guys do as well. But when it comes to holding your team accountable, when it comes to holding your property management team accountable, you know, let's say you're a little bit off track. I mean, what does that actually look like? You know, sort of a look behind the curtain from you guys. I mean, how do you handle a situation like that? Well, as you said, you're always off track somewhere, right? And you're always on track somewhere else. And maybe you're ahead of schedule. So, you know, it comes down to modeling and underwriting conservatively and building factors of safety into it where groups get in trouble where is when they don't do that, right? They don't expect interest rates to rise or cap rates to rise, or they expect occupancy to be at 95% forever. And one of those variables, you're going to be wrong on one of those variables or one of those assumptions. So, you know, sometimes we've done very well on rent growth. And and when we renovate a unit, we've almost, yeah, not almost, we've always met or exceeded our projections, which is usually a great barometer of a successful investment. There's other things that can go wrong, right? Insurance premiums have skyrocketed over the last three years, you know, 10 to 30% increases. Payroll has gone up significantly as a result of COVID and and, and primarily inflation. Material costs have have gone up. So all these different variables, you never know which variable is going to overperform, you know, or or which line item, income or expenses, right, is going to overperform and which is going to underperform. So having that factor of safety built in across the board normally protects you. Did I answer that question? You did. I mean, it's, it's really, it's thinking ahead. It's thinking into the future. It's anticipating, and it's also building in a bit of margin of safety, you know, across the board to be able to withstand some of those challenges. You you've mentioned insurance a few times. I mean, I think that is a, an important topic to just touch on briefly. It is interesting because our insurance provider has also shared with us that we should anticipate even further hikes moving into the future, into the very near future. It sounds like you guys have been having a lot of conversations internally as well. Talk to me about what you're projecting there, because to your point, I mean, man, we've seen just tremendous change in terms of pricing for premiums across the board for property insurance. I mean, what are you anticipating moving forward over the next couple of years there? I think the industry is anticipating, you know, 10 to 20 percent increases. So, you know, you should really model that in and, and, you know, like I said earlier, when it comes to due diligence, make sure you have a current quote, take your quote out to a couple different insurance carriers 
and, and ask them that question. What's expected, you know, down the horizon? Because it changes monthly, weekly. Um, but you really, really need to understand that going forward. But, How about taxes? How are you looking at property taxes? Because insurance is one thing, but I mean, some of these things can be deal killers if you're not careful. Uh, silent deal killers. And property if you don't taxes know. is one of them, right? Exactly. Normally, we'll anticipate assessments increasing upwards of 90% of what we bought the property for. But we also will reach out to the assessor, local county assessor's office to make sure we understand exactly at least how they say they're going to assess. We also will engage a local or national tax assessment company, like a company by the name of Marvin Poor Associates is one of a couple of different national groups that we use. And the reason we use them is because they've worked with that county assessor's office before. And they're the company that will help us uh, estimate where we think taxes are going, going forward. And they'll give us, they'll give us an assessment. Here's aggressive, here's high, low, mid. This is aggressive. This is conservative. So we make sure we're in between there and we're basing our, you know, the, the basing future tax increases off of someone that we think knows it, knows it better than us. But it's kind of a three-pronged approach to to make sure you don't miss that number because as you said, a lot of groups miss it. And once you miss that number, it's very hard to catch up. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if you guys think of this similarly to the way that we do. We we kind of look at every deal and we say, all right, well, there's a handful of you know line items that could go in either direction. And we have to anticipate worst case scenario. We should understand best case scenario as well, but we need to be able to live with worst case scenario. And if we can, this seems like a deal that we should move forward with. Um, is that kind of how you think about that as well? It's how I think about everything. As an example, and again, I give my my team credit for it, but you know, we bought with some variable rate loans last year. We bought very expensive rate caps, a one percent strike, which some of your listeners will understand that is the most expensive. Some of these interest rate caps were one, you know, million and a half, a million and a million, one point seven million dollars that we bought, and and that helped set the ceiling with where our interest rates will go. And how we underwrote those deals, we underwrote those deals at the cap. So interest rates at the time of when we bought it may have been 3.4, 3.5%, but we underwrote the rate over the whole period at the cap. You know, the highest that rate can be for over the next two to three years might be 4.3%. So we're going to model it at that, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And when I think of, you know, just sort of the earlier part of the conversation, we were just talking about sort of where we project the economy to play out. And, and in some cases, you're saying maybe it's a mild to you know moderate recession. Other sort of participants or talking heads may say it's on the other end of the spectrum. They may say that we're looking at a severe recession or even a depression. And, and who really knows really where things are going to play out. But I think we have to be able to live with the circumstances and we have to sort of stress test our thinking for how we're going to interact with this market. So I would actually love to just bring that line of thinking into navigating a market cycle because someone like yourself who's been around for a couple of decades now in the real estate business, you've seen market cycles and you have the wisdom to say, well, you know, not every market cycle is the same. And in fact, they're always different, but there are similarities. So I'd love to know just how you're thinking thinking about navigating this market cycle and how that really plays into just your line of thinking in general on that type of topic. You're making me feel old here, Tyler. <laughs> I know, right? I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I always take it back to how I was in, I've always been in real estate. I was a real estate developer with some partners prior to 2008. And when 2008 hit, I said, hey, I want to build a risk adverse 
a sustainable real estate model. And I jumped into multifamily. And that was a really ugly recession, right? You know, worse than most, you know, most of your listeners have probably been through. And it I always call it a real estate recession, right? Real estate just got hammered. It didn't matter your location, it didn't matter how smart you were, it didn't matter the asset class. However, and everything went back to the bank, right? Everything went went into foreclosure, except for apartments. I learned once the foreclosure rate of multifamily coming out of 2008 was 0.4%. They were the type of real estate that did not go back to the bank because people always need a good, smart, updated, safe place to live in good times and in bad. And in good times, you have young renters that are getting raises and you know are graduating college. They're renters, right? You have millennials that for the most part want to rent and want the flexibility that rentals bring them versus home ownership. And then in a downturn, certainly people are not buying homes, right? I mean, right now, the delta between, you know, rents and mortgage amounts has never been greater based off of where interest rates are. So again, today's dynamic creates more renters. You had more renters than buyers coming out of 2008. So, you know, is that the worst we're going to go through? I'm not sure. But and as I, and I mentioned some of the fear factor of COVID, right? We didn't know that anyone was going to pay their rent. We didn't think we could pay our mortgages. And, you know, in, in the end, certainly we were affected, but collections dipped a bit. Uh, it wasn't catastrophic. So when I look look forward to another recession, you know, am I concerned about it? Absolutely, right? Certainly, I'd rather us not be. But when I look historically back at the performance of multifamily in rough times, there's no better place I'd rather have my money because people need to rent. And, you know, maybe your occupancies dip two percentile. Uh, maybe you can't grow rent, uh, you know, for a, a short period of time. And we saw that through COVID, right? The summer of COVID, it was impossible to grow rent. But I'm not worried about the asset in the short term or the long term. So to answer your question, if you can lock in long term and have a long term mentality with multifamily and you know have a hold projection of five to 10 years, rent growth over a period of time will will outperform and uh, and protect you as will occupancies, as will just as I keep saying over and over, the demand for rentals is there and will help us ride through this next next hurdle that that may or may not be on the horizon here. So in short choose the right asset class and choose the right asset class that has the right demand drivers, that is a sustainable demand driver throughout time, then you're going to put yourself in a position to be successful and sort of weather those storms. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, people always need a place to live. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I just saw that our global population just crossed over 8 billion. And, you know, I think in some cases, some people are saying, well, maybe there's a population collapse on the horizon. Who knows? I mean, but at the end of the day, we still have a tremendous shortage of housing units in the United States. In fact, I just saw, I think it was NMHC said 4.3 million, the number of housing units that we need to develop by 2035 to really 
catch up with the demand. And and so, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. And I also saw that chart, I think it was earlier today about that gap between the cost of owning a home versus renting. And it, it's never been wider than it is today. It's much more expensive to own a home. I think it comes down to the pricing. It comes down to interest rates. You know, we've seen historic price growth in homes across the country. And now, of course, interest rates are hovering around that 7% rate for a 30-year fixed rate. And I think it is interesting to, to understand that that is obviously a tailwind when it comes to multifamily investing, because, you know, instead of purchasing a home as a result, people are now renting even more so. One thing that I'm wondering if you think the same thing that I'm kind of thinking, a potential hidden risk in terms of our occupancies would be along the lines of sort of household formation, perhaps people, um, you know, combining with others to save, you know, inflation has been a big deal, you know, saving money and trying to downsize perhaps. I mean, is that something that you're thinking about or is that more of an ancillary factor on the horizon that just happens during a recession like this? I think it happens during a recession like this. You're going to have kids staying home from college, you know, living in their parents' basements. Yeah, I think, you know, you hear a lot of economists say, hey, the United States needs to be more incentivized to have more children. Right. That's reducing increasing tax incentives there. So I think that will will help from a demand standpoint, but also from a development standpoint, you touched on it. It's so challenging to develop. Like, how does the U.S. ever really catch up You know, with housing demand? Right. Regulatory costs are up 40 percent at the moment. The ability to develop and get approvals through, you know, local municipalities, I mentioned before, planning commissions, zoning, hearing boards, city councils, it's never been more challenging. So to turn that around and make it easier to build and de develop in great locations, right? Not in far out suburban markets, but great location where there's entertainment, where there's job growth, population growth, great access to jobs. I mean, those are the variables that protect your real estate investment. And those are areas where it's very challenging to develop. So I really believe that the demand is going to continue. It's, it's just going to be a long time for the development world to catch up. And at least in, in our world, you know, we're not competing with class A new construction rents. We're in the middle where I like to say 80% of rental demand is, you know, product built in the 70s and 80s. Our tenants are workforce housing, workforce housing plus gray collar, pink collar tenant base, where most of their decision is to rent, at least for the short term. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Well, Mike, this has been such a fun conversation as always. Um, before we wrap today, I'd love to ask you, I mean, how are you investing in yourself today? Because obviously we're talking about this asset class that you and I both love and, and we have such a reverence for and, and believe in to the ends of the earth uh, in many regards. But ultimately, we are our best investment as well. And I, I think it's important for us to to remind ourselves that, you know, we should be continually investing in ourselves. And so we started with some of the conversation around just your humility. And, and that's kind of what I was driving out of the conversation is you've always struck me as a very humble guy, someone who's achieved very much, but you you continue to learn and grow and put yourself in the opportunity of continued growth. So how are you investing yourself these days? You know, as I mentioned earlier, this the last couple of years have been a constant research project. That's been my term. I know you're a crazy reader, right? So I'm trying to read more. I'd love to catch up and be able to read as much as you do, right? What they say, Warren Buffett reads three to four hours a day in the morning before he even gets his, his day started. So I think the thirst for knowledge is, is, is still there for me, especially in volatile times. That's what protects your dollars, your investments, your team, your thinking. And you can never think you know it all, right? 
you know, you need to study, you know, younger trends and older trends, new technologies, continue to stay in touch with the market. Uh, even in a challenging environment like right now where it's hard to buy, but the more you can stay in touch with this, the economy and the cycle and the values of real estate, the better position you'll be in it, you know, you'll, you'll be in to strike coming out of it. I love that thirst for knowledge as well. And, and just treating yourself like a just this research project and, and continuing to grow and learn. I think there's just a lot to, to say about that. And the last thing I want to ask you is because I know that you've designed this amazing life with your your family and, and your girls and all this stuff, man. What are you most excited about for your family moving into the new year? Uh, what do you guys have on the horizon? Anything exciting to share? Uh, let's see. I have three unbelievable daughters. They're ages 12, 10, and, and eight, Lana, Malia, and McKenna. And I was an athlete as a kid and following those same footsteps. Thank God it took them a while, but my two oldest have really gotten into competitive volleyball. And, uh, and I live and die watching them, you know, do their best out there on the, on the court. My little ones playing basketball, will probably get into volleyball and in tennis as well. So outside of the business, that's what I'm most passionate about watching them, you know, follow their dreams and, and helping them achieve on the, on the court alongside of, you know, the, the academics, Tyler. That's right, man. That is so cool. Yours are going to be, yours are going to be there soon. My friend, you just got to get out of those diapers. I secretly want my daughter to play volleyball because I think it's the most fun sport and most entertaining sport. I mean, it's just so athletic and there's so much action. Uh, I think it is such a fun sport. And of course you and I are, are, we're basketball guys. You got the Villanova championship basketball right behind you. I could say go cats, but I'd say it in a, in a totally different way, but uh, (laughs) are the Villanova wild Wildcats going to do anything this year? Yeah, they're off to a slow start, but we, we need to get a couple guys uh, who've been injured off the bench. And I think they'll close. I think they'll close real strong. That's awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you being a family man and just continuing to design that limitless life that you have and and just continuing to share what you're learning as well, man. Mike, I just want to thank you again for being on the podcast today. Part two until part three, my friend, any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation? You know, I, I think just never, never give up, right? If you're passionate about what you do and you're passionate about this industry, now's a wonderful time to jump in with both feet and follow the trend and listen to the economists and listen to guys like you, Tyler, who are out there every day, not only doing it, informing on it, but educating. It just puts everybody in a great spot, a great perspective, you know, good times and in bad. And I really do believe, I think there's going to be some phenomenal buying opportunities coming out of this. I'm excited. I know my team's excited. We're, you know, we're primed to strike when the opportunity is right. And I just encourage everybody continue to listen, learn, read, and, uh, and be prepared. And the more prepared you are, the more opt you will, you know, you'll make a really great decision on buying a great investment. I absolutely agree. And one of the cool things about you is that you've shown that it doesn't stop with that analysis paralysis. Because I think a lot of people get to a point where they're they're learning and reading and growing and listening to the economists and, you know, they're getting all this these data points. But at some point, you've got to go out there and embrace the risk and you've got to move forward. You've got to take action. It's never going to be perfect. It's imperfect action. So I just think that you've really set a great example of that, Mike. Tell the listeners where they can learn more about you and L5 Investments. Yeah, I mean, uh, my website is is just www.l5, Ellis and Larry, the numeral five invest.com. Track me down there at any point in time. Feel free to reach out to Tyler. Tyler, you, you have all my information, including my cell phone, call, text. 
I like to keep myself very accessible to to my investors or potential investors. So reach out anytime. I'm happy to share you know some of the facts and figures and reports that we uh, we follow very closely as well. Well, I always enjoy our conversations, Mike. Until next time, my friend. Thanks so much again for being on the podcast. You got it, Tyler. Thanks so very much for having me, my friend. We'll talk soon, maybe even tomorrow. <laughs> Sounds good, man. We'll talk to you soon. Elevate Nation, Mike Flaherty bringing absolute value as always. Sometimes I don't think Mike realizes how much value he actually brings and how much deep knowledge and wisdom he actually brings because it's just so second nature. And you can just tell that, it, you know, it's through that repetition. It's through looking at deals. It's through asking questions. It's through surrounding yourself with people who may know more than you do at one point in time. And then all of a sudden you become that expert in the room. So I think there's just so much value in having sort of a being able to rub shoulders with somebody like Mike. And you know, the other cool thing is people like Mike are the nicest people that you'll ever meet. And some of the most successful people are always the most generous, they're always the most humble. And I just think that it's a great pattern to observe. And so I want to encourage you to understand or, or really to dive into this conversation and to really immerse yourself into what this was all about. Read between the lines. What did you agree with? What was really surprising to you? What did you disagree? with? What do you feel like was left out of this conversation? I want to encourage you to have a conversation with someone else about that. And maybe your t key takeaways, what are your top one, two or three distinctions that you took from this episode? Did it have something to do with asset management to have something to do with evaluation of deals or growing or, you know, using your analytical mind uh, to evaluate deals? Um, what was it that you took away from this episode? I want to encourage you to jot that down whether it's one thing, two things, three things, if you only have one, that's perfect. Move forward with that and make a commitment to taking action on that distinction because that's how we grow. Knowledge is only potential power. The real power is in taking massive action on that knowledge, committing to that, taking imperfect action and recognizing that failure is feedback. It is not fatal. And so when you need to course correct, do that, you know, get closer to where you want to go. So I just want to encourage you to share this episode with a friend, have a discussion. And of course, listen once again, because repetition is the mother of all skill. Until next time, Elevate Nation, I just want to thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.